This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Rahim, let me get your surname right. It's a, it's one of those complicated surnames. Oh, great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it off my iPad here. Rahim Togazog. Hang on, let me try that again. Togazogadang. No, Togazogadang. Almost right. Almost. Almost. <laughs> ah, damn it. Yeah, you, you Persians, eh? You have to have the most complicated names. <laughs> Rahim is fine. Rahim. <laughs> You're in you're in Vienna, aren't you? Yes, I am currently in Vienna, right? And I've grown up in Vienna as well. So I'm very Austrian. And you are the last Austrian economist in Austria. What does that mean? Yeah, it's very old. <laughs> I mean, I, I hope most of your listeners know the Austrian School of Economics, and it's one of these uh, scientific traditions that came out of the old Austria. And almost all of those traditions disappeared due to the world war and all the craziness of the 20th century. And uh, some of it survived in the United States. So I got to learn the Austrian school in the US and from the last uh, remaining student of Hayek who was still writing in Europe at the time. Uh, and so I just rediscovered the Austrian school of economics. And now I'm teaching at university and I found an institute and I try to bring back the tradition to Austria. That's how it has happened. So it's, it's quite odd that me with the Persian name uh, should uh, be immersed in that tradition. But it helped, I think, because a typical modern Austrian is very different uh, from the old Austrians uh, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, Vienna at the time was a hub of entrepreneurship and science. And nowadays, Vienna is a hub of government intervention and bureaucrats. So the mindset has changed a lot, and I think it helped to have a different mindset, uh, but still uh, have have a feeling and, and empathy for the Austrian culture and heritage. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about Austrian school of economics, you don't necessarily mean the country of Austria. Uh, no, uh, but I mean a certain phase in, in time, uh, which was mm -hmm. very interesting and was mainly concentrated in Vienna, but... Uh, uh, it was scientists and uh, entrepreneurs and thinkers all around uh, Europe. And uh, Vienna was one of the hubs, one of the cultural hubs. Uh, and it helped a lot that the Austro-Hungarian Empire was a very diverse structure, uh, not a modern nation state, uh, but a very complicated arrangement of very different nations. Uh, and for a while, uh, government in particular, the emperor, was taking a hands-off approach, more or less, because he figured out you can't really, with rising nationalism, you can't rule it top-down uh, like that. So it was a very short term when Emperor uh, Joseph Francis said that his task is to protect his people from their government, which I think is a great task for an emperor to take. Mm. So that's the best, best possible scenario, but of course it didn't uh, survive uh, the age of nationalism and warfare, and it all disappeared. I've read some of the work of uh, Frederick Hayek and Ludwig von Mises, and it appeals to me and it makes sense to me. Why has it died out largely? I guess it made sense to you because you haven't studied economics, have you, at university? No, I haven't studied okay, economics. Yeah, that, that helps. Uh, in particular, if you have a more down-to-earth background, being an engineer helps, being an entrepreneur helps. Uh, it's just common sense, I'd say. It's common sense economics. Uh, uh, so you need to study, I think, at least five years for you to lose your common sense uh, and go through mainstream <laughs> economics. So it takes quite a while to, to unlearn everything you may know about real human interaction and then uh, get a taste for these model humans they try to uh, describe uh, with the modern scientific mainstream economics. So it's, you, it's an it's an odd it's an odd tradition. It's uh, uh, but I think it's it's the one that makes most sense. And to anyone who has an understanding of of real economics, and it's mostly entrepreneurs and engineers nowadays, I'd say to them it comes naturally. Yeah, I mean, if it if it doesn't make sense, why is it um, not being implemented by economists? Are economists driven by 
formulas and mathematics and not human connection? No, they are driven like most people by uh, needing to get a job <laughs> and uh, needing to get a job as an economist is not that easy <laughs> because there's very little use for theoretical economics. Uh, so it's really hard to survive on that alone. Uh, most economists, of course, are employed, employed by central banks and governments. You know, the, the most economists ever having a job was in the Soviet Union. And it tells you already <laughs> where you need economists. The less real economics, the more, and the less real spontaneous economy, the more you need economists. Uh, so the uh, uh, well-paid jobs for economists are usually people coming up with scientific-looking alibis for rationales or mm. rationales for interests. And, and that's that's mainly their job. That's why you need statistics and, and formulas and so on. So it's not that they are really driven by an epistemological idea that you'd need uh, uh, mathematics to understand things. Very few uh, economists actually really have a clue about mathematics. I, I studied myself natural sciences and uh, I was quite surprised how, how, how little it was based uh, the uh, economists map in, in, in true mathematics. Uh, it's rather just uh, throw out something that looks scientific mm. and that just confirms uh, the interest that are paying you. So you're obviously an, ec an economist, uh, a book author, a bunch of books, but you're also the president of Free Private Cities, um, a very interesting project slash concept. What is it? Uh, it's a concept that arose out of special administrative zones, which is an upgrade to special economic zones and the general understanding that uh, what we are lacking is innovation in the field of politics in the sense of living together and the rules it takes and the frameworks it takes. We see a lot of political failure and one of the reasons for this failure is there is no need for innovation. It's basically you need to take what's there or you got to leave. Uh, uh, now the problem for politicians is it has become much easier to leave. Uh, so people are more mobile more. So that's one pressure there, uh, which is a good pressure, I think, on politics. Uh, and uh, on, on the other hand, some uh, governments trying to real are starting to realize that they should maybe treat subjects like customers, in particular those that bring money, investors uh, in particular, and that helped uh, to bring out a new flourishing of special economic zones. Now, most of those don't work that well. Uh, some work very well, but most don't work well because it's not just enough to offer lower taxes or uh, no customs and so on. It's really about uh, a stable framework uh, for people to build up something in the long term. And that's where politics is really failing. Most of politics now is very short term oriented, very high time preference kind of politics. Uh, uh, so I believe and we believe in this uh, foundation that uh, we are in an age where uh, innovation will increase uh, and competition will increase increase in this field. And it may be a re-flourishing of the concept of the autonomous city state. And uh, we may live through the demise of the nation state, of the centralized artificial nation states in particular. The phrase free private city, let's break that apart. Uh, just for clarity, what do you mean by free, firstly? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, free uh, means that kind of autonomy that you have your own rules. Uh, that was how the Greeks uh, interpreted it, uh, and they came up with the concept uh, of freedom, uh, and uh, how in the Western tradition it was formed. So the big difference uh, of the Western tradition is that there was autonomy not only of cities, but all kinds of corporations that are voluntary associations of people. And they could act according to their own rules and even have their own courts uh, and own jurisdictions. Uh, uh, corporations like the university, for example, where autonomous uh, structures, autonomous associations. Uh, so that's the freedom. It's the freedom to have your own rules as a group uh, and uh, the freedom of the individual uh, by joining the groups and leaving the groups, he sees fit to increase his in individual liberty as well. Right. And then the term private. Uh, private uh, refers uh, to the tradition of private property, uh, which means some of those uh, cities were proprietarian communities in the sense of the landowners. 
is linked to land ownership. You have a complete land ownership. You're not just a full administrator of something. You don't have a fiefdom. It's really the concept that you can use your property as a means of production. And that that trumps all other things. Uh, yeah, for me, yes. But uh, I, I don't claim objective authority on that. It's, it's more like a question of preference and then mm. assumptions a bit. But I'd say yes, I think that's the most important part of it uh, is the private part. But it's the part that's the most difficult to sell, I'd say. Right. Uh, and it makes the concept difficult. So politicians, of course, don't want to hear anything about private <laughs> or privacy. Yeah. Uh, in particular, private property in the full meaning uh, of the term. Uh, but I do think, yes, that's it's the most important thing because it allows you to say no. Uh, you can shut the door, you can say no to all the craziness or nonsense around you. And that I think is the most important thing uh, in, in this tradition, the ability to say no. And I suppose this is the most interesting of the three, but how do you define a city? Uh, a city uh, is uh, a node uh, of uh, people or a hub of people uh, that don't know each other that well, so they are not a tribe. They are there to voluntarily cooperate and uh, take part in increasing returns of cooperation. So cities allow for exponential growth due to innovation because it brings together different people under very different mindsets, uh, different than the one usually employed in politics, and it's a win-win mindset. So I think a city is a hub of win-win cooperation. It can, it, uh, usually it's a physical place, but it, it doesn't have to be in the future. Uh, I think parts of the internet uh, and other technologies can uh, work the same. And, and so a city can be uh, considered as an infrastructure for win-win cooperation. That's a natural progression of society, isn't it? Oh, well, it's hard to say what's natural. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's a cultural uh, progression. Uh, it's not that natural because it's in many uh, uh, ways, it's uh, opposed to our instincts. Our instincts were, poor, were formed in a very different situation of the close, tightly knit tribe with all people having the same rules or following the same rules uh, and high tr trust uh, uh, due to kinship relations. Now, the trust in a city, and in particular free private city, is a very different kind of trust. Uh, it's not to the kinship relations. It's to something you earn, something you, you have to prove by your behavior and your voluntary behavior. So I don't think it comes that naturally. Uh, that's why it's rather the exception in history. And, uh, but these exceptions are incredibly strong and, and uh, have an incredible influence on the world. A private city, obviously, is another way of saying a city-state. Yes, but the term state, of course, is quite complicated. Uh, by now, we mean sovereignty. So mm. you can also call it sovereign city, which is maybe better. Uh, and it's an outgrowth, I think, of the sovereign individual mm. uh, as well, which doesn't mean that you have to be atomized on your own, but that's uh, basically on the individual le level you choose if you partake in cooperation, if you are part of a city, uh, size uh, corporation or if you're part of many cities as it used to be the case in the past that a few people had bases in, in many different cities and connected those cities uh, and were in correspondence with many people in, in different cities uh, and so on. Why then is a free private city a great idea? It's a great idea because it proved in, pa in the past uh, that uh, it uh, was really so far the best governance solution for human cooperation because those city-states or sovereign cities are behind most of European or Western cultural flourishment. Uh, not only in the sciences, in, in, in entrepreneurship, in commerce, in industry, in technology, but also in music and art and so on. It was all focused on those sovereign cities. Uh, it starts very early with a very old city culture that has been erased from history books, the Phoenicians, uh, which provided the alphabet that we're still use it, using and uh, the earliest books, the papyrus uh, that we used for it. 
and the coloring, the dyeing for the textile industry, which uh, became very important for Europe and the maritime technology uh, of, of ships, of vessels that can go through the Mediterranean. Uh, so already very early city-based culture. And then, of course, the Greeks uh, with the Hellenistic culture, which is incredibly important uh, for Europe. And uh, the Roman Empire is a quite uh, difficult uh, situation. I'm not a friend of that phase, uh, but it helped to spread the Hellenistic culture. Uh, uh, so that's the importance of the Roman Empire. And then it became Christian. Uh, and uh, that's the other important part of it. And the Christian culture was very much based on the monastic tradition and the city tradition as well. Uh, and then we had the northern Italian cities, uh, which were behind the Renaissance later on. And then we have the northern uh, uh, the Alpine cities and the northern cities uh, of Germany and uh, the Netherlands and the Baltic region. Uh, and then uh, we have the British experience also based uh, on cities and trade between cities. Uh, so I'd say uh, the larger part of Western culture comes out of these few flourishing sovereign cities and their connections. And uh, it's greatly underrated because, of course, mm -hmm. the, the nation state somehow tried uh, by rewriting history, usurp all that uh, cultural heritage uh, as if it was its achievement, whereas, in fact, it's the other way around. The nation state is an outgrowth of this cultural flourishing and technological flourishing and so on and could make use of all that. So let's just make sure that uh, we, we, we understand this. A city-state is essentially an expansion of communities who are uh, in collaboration with one another peacefully. Yes. Yes, and it's not tribal community. It's community uh, uh, around shared interest uh, and uh, uh, the strongest connected connection is the economic connection or the commercial connection. Trade uh, tended to be, and then later on, correspondence about ideas, in particular scientific and cultural ideas, mm. those were the bonds uh, that linked together Western civilization. So a, a classic example would be, say, Rome and Athens. They, both, they were both city-states back in the day before they expanded outwards. Uh, Rome uh, was from the beginning on more territorial. Uh, uh, and there's a difference to it. Uh, and the question is, do you uh, start from a territory and increase it uh, by subjugating ever more territories? And that's mm. how Rome worked uh, up to the empire. Uh, whereas the Hellenic situation, of course, there are a lot of warfare between those city-states, but it's uh, always focused on like one uh, city hub and then the land around it. Uh, uh, of course, trying to increase it a little bit, but it's not as the center of an empire. It's only Alexander the Great then used uh, uh, or, or made the Hellenistic uh, realm of the world into an empire and turned it into an empire. And it's a very different principle. It's a different principle of, of organization, I'd say, uh, whereas the city-state is more linked by mobile connections and bonds, uh, and that was trade but also piracy, uh, unfortunately. So that's, that's maybe the downside of the Hellenistic culture. Those were pirates. But pirates, the good thing about pirates is that they have a sense of liberty. Uh, it's a sense of cohesion in a certain group. Uh, and it doesn't lend itself easily to the kind of top-down control that you have in a big empire. That's why the clash between the Persian Empire and, and the Greek uh, city-state-like uh, area was also a cultural crash between two different ways, mm. uh, two different governance structures, I'd say. One of the more contemporary examples that uh, I suppose people might know is the Hanseatic League. Um, what was that all about and why was it mm. successful for so many years? Yeah, I, I think it's it's surprising how few people know about that, uh, given the importance uh, of the Hanseatic League. Uh, now, Hansa uh, just means in old German, a group. Uh, and uh, it means the association of uh, traders. Uh, so traders, uh, merchants, uh, figured out it makes sense to join voluntarily an association. And uh, first, it's an association to protect their trade routes and to protect each other. Uh, against the encroachments uh, of petty princes uh, and so on. And then it became an association of cities. Uh, and this association of cities became uh, quite powerful, even militarily. So they could prevail for quite a while against uh, 
the forming nation state, uh, which is all the principle of centralizing top-down power uh, in certain capital cities and amassing uh, mass armies of conscripts. Uh, but for quite a while, these defense leagues uh, could hold out against that. And interestingly, it's not just it just it's not just a few hidden cities somewhere. It's the most important and wealthiest cities of their time, controlling the Baltic trade. So uh, after northern Italy more or less fell behind uh, because uh, it couldn't, nothing holds forever in history. So the encroachments in particular of the uh, feudal kings then in Central Europe, uh, they ended uh, the tradition uh, of the autonomous city-state in large parts. They ended it completely in Spain, which had a quite similar tradition of important cities. It ended it uh, in France. It ended it in northern Italy as well. Uh, so they just fell behind it. It seemed for most cities that it's impossible to keep up militarily with those people who concentrate tax income and conscript armies and then figure out a deal with the banks of their time, which I think really was the uh, winning streak uh, of the nation state uh, uh, joining forces with, with big financial houses uh, because war needs a lot of money, needs a lot of credit, and that's if you figure it out, you can make a lot of money uh, providing that kind of credit. Uh, and uh, that's what happened then in Italy, and it happened in southern Germany and northern, the northern part of Germany. But it's not only Germany; it's it's. Uh, 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 it was now it's uh, I think 11 or 12 nation states what was the Hanse so it's really a connection of cities uh, formed partly as colonial outposts fort uh, but formed mostly uh, as merchant uh, um, merchant posts trade posts but also as formation of a Teutonic Knights order which is also an odd thing. So in Europe, we had orders, uh, knight orders, which were autonomous associations as well. And they acted on their own as well, having their own rules, having their own military forces. Uh, and it was this interplay uh, which uh, provided this very interesting uh, network of cities that were not controlled and for a very long time not controllable by centralizing powers. Um, and uh, those cities are behind most of the innovations in, in commerce, uh, in, in banking and accounting, uh, but also in technology as well, uh, and, and in trade, of course, and very wealthy places, uh, which uh, the central powers, of course, uh, were eager to uh, make part of their uh, nation state projects. You, you, you said that uh, you're astounded by how few people are aware of the Hanseatic League and the, the impact that it had. And uh, when you talk about Hansa, a beer that we drink today is called Hansa. Ah, okay, yeah. Um, okay, in, in South Africa, you know the term. That's yes. Uh, well, those of us who, who are aware. Uh, but yes, another interesting aspect, Lufthansa, the, the airline. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I, I haven't been to, to Germany, but I am aware that there aren't, car registration or car number plates that make reference to the Hanseatic cities. Is that is that correct? Yes, a Hamburg still refers to itself as a Hanseatic city. It's not anymore. Uh, mm. So, uh, yes, in Germany, it's known, but it's the significance is not known because uh, what happened uh, was that uh, uh, with the nation state, in particular, Emperor Wilhelm uh, II then realized that he needs to somehow make use of that economic power. Uh, and he won part of uh, society over uh, because, of course, if you are a dominating city in a nation state, uh, there, that provides, of course, jobs, that provides uh, potential ways to earn money. And it was particularly the promise to create a fleet which would uh, compete with the British uh, that made a lot of people happy in Germany because it provided military jobs in the military hierarchy for non-nobles. And that seemed to be something very attractive for the, for the sons of entrepreneurs and merchants to make that kind of statist uh, uh, career and become uh, uh, someone of a very high importance uh, mm. within the growing nation state. Uh, so there was a joining of forces and nowadays, it's just something that you may feel patriotic about in Hamburg. Uh, still, Hamburg is quite an important economic center, and Germany is still important economically, of course. It's a powerhouse, uh, but most people don't understand why. 
they assume it's it's maybe the politics of Germany. May, maybe Merkel is really that great. Uh, mm. uh, but in fact, it's all cultural capital, of course. Uh, it's very long traditions of entrepreneurship, uh, uh, a very long tradition of a middle class that is uh, taking care of its money, investing, uh, being hardworking, reliable people. And that all boils down uh, to those traditions. Uh, and uh, Germany is particularly strong mm. there in uh, the northern uh, cities and in the southern uh, alpine parts of Germany, which have another tradition a link to the mining cities in the Alps and also uh, nodes and hubs in the very traditional uh, trade roads connecting the north and the south. Because what's right between Italy and Germany, uh, right between uh, the, the northern, the League of Northern Italian Cities and the Hanseatic League is the Alpine Passes. Uh, and right. it's uh, current Austria, Switzerland, Liechtenstein, and uh, southern Germany. And those parts are among the richest still in Europe. Uh, and it's all because they were that very important bridge between the old Italian uh, city culture and the new Hanseatic city culture uh, in between. And it's, it's a whole culture of alpine trade posts and mining uh, which was part particularly important for money uh, and the monetary standards then based on precious metals what triggered the birth of the hanseatic league it didn't, it didn't just suddenly appear no it was a gradual process uh, uh, there are positive things like a culture of merchants uh, being immersed in the tradition of associations, which is very European. So there, uh, we had quite a while of dysfunctional empires, which let, uh, left a lot of space open for self-organization and people getting together and figuring out how to cope with the uncertainties. Um, Plus, there's a negative element, and that's the dying off of the other uh, uh, city cultures, in particular northern Italy and Venice. Uh, now, Venice for a long time in Genoa and so on, they dominated uh, really Mediterranean trade, but Mediterranean trade died due to uh, being encroached by the Spanish uh, top-down nation-state uh, uh, and the Ottoman Empire, which was another Islamic nation-state, and for a while... Uh, those two uh, top-down constructs, both both based on mass warfare, uh, controlled more or less the Mediterranean and thus uh, uh, cut off uh, those Italian cities from their arteries of life, more or less. Uh, so then there was a reorientation. Many people left, actually, the cities and the, took the knowledge with them. They brought the double-entry accounting, banking, and so on. They brought it up north. Uh, and uh, for a while up north, there was a new liberty, uh, a new commercial liberty, and the Baltic Ocean replaced the Mediterranean uh, for a while. Uh, and uh, it was really due to being a fringe of Europe. It was very fringe. Uh, in the sense, it's really new creations, new colonial outposts, is all either eastern to the Elbe River, which is colonial uh, lands of the Germans, the Prussians in particular, they go east. Uh, and their eastern uh, city formations are colonial cities, so they are not directly under uh, empire, under the rule of the empire. It's like uh, a pioneer going somewhere and you have to give him some liberty in doing mm -hmm. so. Um, and uh, that helped. So there was a tradition of liberty, either due to being formations of uh, as colonial outposts by some lords uh, who went there as pioneers or trade posts, or creations of the orders of the Teutonic Knights. Uh, uh, and that mixture led to a tradition of liberty of those trade posts and those cities. And uh, so first the merchants associated themselves with each other uh, because they were not entirely based just on one city and certainly not on one nation. Uh, it, it's the German Hanse, so it was the Germanic languages that uh, were the lingua franca uh, there. But uh, the people were quite mobile in their undertakings uh, and sometimes even physically. Uh, so most would look at many cities at the same time as part of their base, as part of their mm. commercial base. Um, and it's all not concentrated on the land. It's not a territorial state. It's all concentrated on the sea, uh, on the Baltic Ocean as a, a natural connection between different ports and different cities. So it's a very different outlook. Uh, and out of this association of merchants, you have an association of cities starting, emerging, and that became a defense league. Mm. Uh, and then the cities all chip in 
uh, and they have their own monetary standard, uh, the Hanseatic pound, uh, uh, which is uh, based on, on precious metals, uh, of course, and has maintained its purity for a very long time. Um, and that was part of the success story. So it's a kind of merchants and cities understanding that they need to join forces sometimes without becoming one top-down collective. So it's only if there is a common challenge that you mm. unite, otherwise you don't. So the parliament, there's a kind of parliament, the Hansetag, it's only convened if there's a challenge. So you don't have full-time politicians uh, and bureaucrats and so on. So there was a tradition of liberty and a desire for bottom-up decentralized um autonomy yes because there are, i'd say there's there's no other way the nation state isn't yet there and it, mm. it starts it emerges but emerges as a threat against the cities because of war of course what the nation state needs in emerging is more and more funds to wage wars and uh, war and destruction of course is the opposite of trade and commerce commerce rather needs peace uh, uh, than, than destruction so if decentralization was key to its success, it was also the key to its demise. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, I think a part of the key of the demise is at first the nation state really was a success story. Uh, but it's not so much about centralization. Uh, I don't think that that is the only the success uh, of the nation state. I think it was really the merging of the decentralized structure of finance with the centralized structure of warfare, where you have for a while economies of scale. And there's a change of military technologies and so on, um, where that makes sense. The state needed the funds from private bankers. Otherwise the nation state would, have, would not have formed. Without the city, this decentralized city culture, there would have been not enough economic power and technological uh, innovation available for the central state uh, to form. Uh, so it needed that, but unfortunately it, it found it uh, in the bigger uh, banking houses like the Fugas. The Fugas are a South German banking house. Uh, and those people figured out if you join forces with the nascent nation state, you become you can become very rich, uh, much richer than just by providing uh, funds to uh, regular guys, uh, and uh, we've seen that success story until today. I mean, <laughs> if you join forces, it's the whole story of big government and, and big business and big mm -hmm. banking and fiat money, of course. It's the whole story of fiat money, uh, where one of the major innovation was how do you, you'd say nowadays, tokenize uh, government credit. And they figured that out, how to make an asset out of the promises of warlords mm -hmm. uh, and by providing all this innovation and this infrastructure and the means of private investors to the centralizing powers and financing those warlords, basically, mm. uh, unfortunately, it proved to be a success story. And it was based on military technology uh, as well, that for a while, military technology really lended itself to this kind of centralization. Because with the artillery, artillery warfare, um, uh, the, the old defensive structures wouldn't hold uh, anymore. And uh, uh, if you have just enough firepower, yeah. you'd go through uh, city by city and they don't stand a chance uh, just due to the development of military technology. Uh, but that changes over time. So unfortunately, it was a phase where mili the developments of military technology lent themselves to scaling uh, effects uh, and centralized application of military force. But there is also another reason, um, uh, and that's more of what you are highlighting. Now, I wouldn't say it's decentralization. The problem is uh, the Hanseatic uh, cities and the northern Italian cities were different from the Hellenistic cities in the sense that they are just trade hubs. They don't have territory. Whereas the old uh, Greek city-state has an agricultural base as well. It's a small one, but still, I mean, it's like a region. Uh, and the region... Uh, of course, links to the people in the city to not just be city people, but being connected to the earth and being connected to production. Whereas if you're just a trade hub, you can lose track of production and you can become less innovative over time. And that's what we see in Northern Italy and the Hanseatic cities, that they became less innovative over time. Uh, because then it may seem like it's just a money game. 
Uh, and the money game, unfortunately, can be rigged. Uh, and uh, it can be something where you figure out, wow, there's a lot of money to be made in war and destruction and so on, uh, in, in spying maybe and, and cheating and, uh, mm. uh, and, and lying uh, and the whole financial innovations, uh, uh, which are quite dif different to technological innovations. Uh, and uh, that, I think, was unfortunate. Uh, so it's not decentralization per se. It's a concentration on... I'd say that the money part uh, of trade in particular, and then figuring out the incentives uh, uh, that it's not sound money that gives you the best advantage. If you're in control of money, uh, it's really, it'll be great to make use of the Cantillon effect. Uh, that is like debasing money and being the first to receive the debased money and all those kind of banking tricks, which is basically just creating a hierarchy of people, uh, those receiving the credit and money first and those receiving it last. Uh, so I think that distorts a bit the incentive structure and also the status games. Now, another problem, if you focus too much on short-term money success, uh, it, it can become a status game. And the Northern Italian cities were really uh, in wasting so much energy on status. Uh, uh, so the first skyscrapers in the world were built in Northern Italian cities. You can still visit them. And they are amazing buildings, but they are sad because they're totally useless. They're just there is like showing who has the longest or the highest. <laughs> uh, it's just status games uh, and it's a waste. Uh, uh, and then you figure out, wow, I'll have even more status if I have some kind of credential titles and it's uh, usually religious or state authorities granting those titles. Maybe I can buy those titles. Uh, and mm. uh, that's how the game was rigged. Uh, it's basically merchants and entrepreneurs wanting for their kids not to have to work so hard because maybe they were spoiled uh, and uh, wanting to buy them some posts in the church hierarchy or mm. the hierarchy of the nation state uh, and provide them with secure positions where they don't really have to risk that much, where they don't have to work that hard. And we still have the same situation today. I mean, many entrepreneurs, they know that uh, working on your own means you have to work all the time. Uh, uh, because you are in charge mm. uh, and they sometimes want to spare their kids that kind of survival pressure and they push their kids towards making academic careers and, and uh, bureaucratic careers and technocratic careers uh, because that confers the status uh, and that's uh, really where I think the city-states fell back behind. Because if you look for the status only outside, and of course, a big nation state is the best provider of status. And then particularly once they control education, they have the whole credential education system, and you want to be part of the game. And then, of course, uh, uh, you can't outcompete them at providing status, uh, and uh, you get co-opted and corrupted. Uh, and basically, the nation state uses all this energy of private people. Uh, but it's not decentralization per se. I, I think it's it's mm. uh, really uh, people uh, forgetting what made them wealthy uh, and, and thinking they are shortcuts, in particular for the children. It sounds like you're implying that a city-state is about cooperation and prosperity while a nation-state is about control. Uh, yes, I mean, it may sound quite hard. What I mean by nation state, of course, are the big European processes of centralized states, which were very much military creations. So the, the, the first uh, and most successful one was the Spanish one, or the first successful one was the Spanish one. And they were successful in pushing the Muslims out of uh, South and Spain, of course. Uh, but it lent itself to this kind of mass uh, conscription army based uh, top-down state and uh, Spain from being one of the more innovative uh, parts of Europe became the least innovative part of Europe. Uh, and uh, so it's not the problem of the nation of, of, of Spanish as a language of culture and so on. It's a problem uh, of creating a centralized, very cynical kind of creature where war became, becomes an end in itself. So there's no end in the nation state, but aggrandizing itself through warfare or marriage. Uh, uh, and they were started by Spain and then, of course, France mm. and, and the Prussians, uh, of course, were uh, quite successful as that. And then the Nazis as well pursued that kind of it's not I mean, 
it's not entirely, it's not just building a nation because there was the nation formation of Germany, for example, was much earlier and it's a mm. cultural process. It's a process of bonds, uh, of, of like of, uh, a language can emerge quite naturally where people abandon their dialects because they move, because they want to correspond with other people. They learn other languages, uh, but it's the top down using of this process of cultural homogeneity for, uh, homogeneous centralized state uh, so it's the artificiality that's the problem what then makes a city state successful uh, that it's not on its own it's not just a city state it's part of a network and that allows for more innovation because even if one city state uh, takes a collective decision which is wrong it's not that problematic because it looks naturally outward to other nodes in a network and can learn from them and can shift course. Whereas if you only have centralized nation states who are even in culturally closing themselves to other uh, cultures, you can continue making tremendous errors and no one can learn from them uh, and you get into intervention spirals. Uh, so you need a decentralized structure for innovation to happen. Innovation always means doing something differently uh, and it's only useful usually it's only useful if everyone else believes you're a fool uh, by doing so because otherwise it wouldn't be innovation then everyone would know so so it's the liberty to do something mm -hmm. which the majority thinks is foolish is stupid uh, you shouldn't do it you shouldn't be allowed to do it uh, and it's a network structure decentralized structure and the city state is a decentralized structure but it has nodes it means they are hubs because mm. you can have, of course, people distributed in, in small agricultural communes all around the globe. You wouldn't have that impact because they are separated from each other. So it's nodes in a network that can be quite dense, can bring together people, but still are relatively small compared to the network as a whole. So if they fail, it's not the whole network that fails. Uh, and thus the network itself grows over time in, in wealth and innovation and culture. Mm. It's the freedom to make choices and to make mistakes. Yes, yes. It's a very trial error process. Uh, and we know that, that most of the cultural and technological flourishing uh, in the West came out of this trial and error process. It did not come from experts and academics degreeing something. It's usually the other way around. You, you become an expert and academic once something is established as a field. Uh, you don't become an expert on it once it's new and innovative because everyone else fear things it's foolish it's mm. a mistake it won't work out uh, so you need the kind of trial and error of people trying out things and being free to try out things and saying no to collective decisions that turn out to be wrong you focus a lot on europe but what about the rest of the world um in antiquity what about um south america or uh, the north america or even africa or asia uh, are there are there examples of successful city states and these nodes and these networks? Uh, very few. It's really a Western phenomenon. Of course, the city cultures are a non-Western phenomenon, and they arise very early. Uh, and usually, the highest concentrations and hubs of people and thus culture and science were outside of Europe. So the odd paradox is really why did modernity happen in Europe and then be passed on? Uh, why did it not happen in Asia, for example? And the reason is really, for example, the Chinese never had this tradition of a city as a node. It was always the city as an administrative center. Uh, and it's the same with the other older uh, city cultures uh, in, in Sumer and, and Egypt and so on. There, the city is a hub of redistribution, more or less, uh, uh, and of bringing people together uh, linked by religious bonds, but really that make possible large-scale collective agriculture. And usually it's based around the water management, uh, which is a mm. collective task in these regions. Uh, so they were very successful at their times, but they didn't bring about that kind of cultural flourishing. Of course, they are, they are uh, very uh, uh, valuable cultures, but not that kind of flourishing with this density of new things and new innovations emerging. And for a long time, Europe was really a backwater. Uh, and it's just then out of a sudden, and that happened many times, out of a sudden with the empire gone and Europe being considered a barbarian backwater, suddenly you realize, wow, they have the strongest fleet. Uh, and it's a city, it's a few cities that out of a swamp emerge. 
And then like a generation later, you come there and you expect them all to be uh, backward barbarians, but they uh, out uh, compete you in technology and wealth uh, as well. So that's a surprising thing. And it didn't only happen once, it happened many times uh, uh, in Europe that uh, uh, then later on, I mean, these, these northern Baltic regions or backwaters in the Netherlands, a very interesting example is a different Hanse. Uh, that then is oriented towards the North Sea and mm. and, the, and and the world uh, at large. It becomes the wealthiest part of the world and one of the earliest modern uh, economies. Uh, and it arises out of the swamp in, in the Rhine mm. Delta, where no one would expect it. It's, it's very unlikely locations where you would expect the poorest of the poor, uh, but it's the opposite. Uh, and it happens many times. And it's really this kind of progress. Uh, it's not entirely Western. I mean, of course, I mean, Europe uh, was always linked uh, with the traditions. Christianity is not something mm. Western, but it joins forces with this uh, Western tradition of associations, of corporations, and the church changes, of course, and it yeah. becomes a counterpower, uh, which is very important. It's not the same thing. It's not a top-down structure of being a God king. Uh, it's a church as an institution, and then you have uh, monastic orders as their own autonomous institutions. And there's a lot of back and forth and fighting about uh, who gets to say what. Uh, and this interplay is particularly Western, but has influenced the world. Uh, uh, so the first modern economies are Netherlands, then in Great Britain, you have the so-called Industrial Revolution, which is not a very complicated topic. Uh, but uh, let's just say for the moment, yeah, for a while, the British were the wealthiest uh, mm. on the planet. And then, of course, they spread that. Uh, but the spreading happened much earlier as well, before we had a Mediterranean culture, which is to a largest part not in Europe nowadays. It's Northern Africa. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, Western Asia. Um, out of which this culture emerges uh, and goes back to. And then it goes all around the world. We've seen an Asian miracle. And this Asian miracle is largely to accepting that possibility of a more city-based uh, innovation. And a few people realize that really what pushed China to go from complete top-down control uh, to the more mixed uh, economy, which leaves quite a lot of entrepreneurial freedom it faces and under the framework of the party, uh, that was really pushed by the example of Singapore, um, which is one of the last few remaining city-states of old. And of course, it's a Western creation, but joining forces with a kind of Asian hunger for progress uh, and Asian cultures and cultural values as well. So it proves itself uh, amendable to a lot of different cultures because it's really not about uh, a culture in the narrow sense. It's really about a governance structure. It's an innovation in governance, I'd say. Mm. Uh, figuring out that those kind of autonomous structures are better in the long term due to their higher innovativeness <clears throat> and uh, lower rate of failure. Yeah, you mentioned Singapore as... Uh, one of the very few, perhaps, modern-ish examples of a city-state. Would Monaco be another one? Monaco, yes. Of course. Uh, we have a few uh, uh, remainders in Europe, Liechtenstein, uh, mm. but it's not really a city-state. Uh, and uh, uh, so Monaco as well, I mean, those uh, come out of the old European order where not everything, not every part on, on the uh, map was covered by uh, the central state, almost everything, because before it was really thousands of different territorial and overlapping structures. Now it's boiled down to a few, but a few small places remained, and Monaco is among them. Uh, but Monaco, I would say that it was formed like an autonomous city. It's a remainder of the full structure. It's more city-like than Liechtenstein, for example. Uh, but Liechtenstein is more important as a financial hub, even though it looks like a farm, farming villages. It's more important financially, and it's all digital nowadays, of course. Mm. Uh, so Liechtenstein has become more important than Monaco. Uh, uh, but those are remainders. But the really city-states are outside of Europe now because uh, it's Europe is the only part of the world where special economic zones are not possible uh, because the EU really is a centralizing force uh, that hates competition. Uh, a few things survive, but... Uh, on the threat, uh, uh, like Monaco, it's they survive because they have all kind of arrangements with the French. Uh, 
basically not allowing any French citizen any kind of the liberties that Monaco provides. Uh, so if your French uh, changes nothing for you, uh, just it gets more mm. expensive when you move to Monaco. And the same with the small uh, city-state-like things in Italy, a few survive uh, of that. Um, so uh, no, more important are the remainders of the colonial order outside of Europe as city-states, and those are Singapore and the Emirates. Uh, Abu Dhabi, uh, perhaps, and um, Dubai. Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and so on, yes. Those are the Emirates. Uh, they are big success stories. Of course, it's not uh, for everyone to like, uh, mm. but it's amazing considering that those are desert states having Sharia law. <laughs> As, uh, so Islamic desert states, the least you would expect them to be hubs, but they've become hubs by realizing that uh, they were fortunately small enough to not go for the territorial nation-state way. So they had to remain hubs. They had been hubs in history as well. Mm. And then to, to being a remainder of the British order, more or less, they made you best use of that. And uh, what they figured out is the only way to attract expats and investors to uh, the desert is to not to apply Sharia law. Right. <laughs> is to yeah. leave, uh, as is the old tradition, if you want merchants, have let them have their own laws. Mm. Uh, let them bring the rules they are used to. Uh, and that's what the Dubai Financial Center, for example, offers, which is a special administrative zone. And that's an example. It's not a utopia. It's something that's working. Uh, and uh, it brings a lot of the wealth of Dubai. Of course, Dubai is not oil rich. Uh, mm. So all of the wealth uh, is coming to, to investment, production, being a trade hub and financial hub. Uh, Abu Dhabi is even wealthier. Mm. Um, Whereas Dubai has gone for a bit of the short-term investment like Fiat wealth, uh, uh, whereas Abu Dhabi is taking a more long-term approach. Uh, but still, I think they are success examples. They are showing the potential of going within one generation from a fishing village in mm. the unlikeliest place of the planet to a miracle city where even a Westerner would consider living uh, and say, okay, yeah, you can have a very high uh, quality of life yeah, yeah. and great job opportunities, zero taxes, uh, good place to be. Um, uh, and, and that's a very European thing uh, or Western thing. So it's not really Western anymore. And I mm. don't think it's culturally entirely uh, Western. I mean, it depends how you look at it. You can be very proud of the heritage, but if you don't consider yourself a European, you'd say, well, I, I, probably that culture will live on outside of Europe. And I'm convinced of that. that Europe now is a very unlikely place for a new Hanseatic League to emerge, unfortunately. Yeah. So, I mean, I met you a few weeks ago when you were here in South Africa, and um, I thoroughly enjoyed the talk that you gave. And you you made mention of South Africa being in the future. What did you mean by that? In two uh, senses, it's the future of Europe. Uh, <laughs> in a negative way obviously because the south african nation state is as artificial as the european union uh and even more dysfunctional so it's the example <laughs> of what does it look like to live in an entirely dysfunctional artificial nation state that you can learn in south africa so everyone who wants to learn in europe and see what in 10 15 years life look like in europe uh can go to south africa but it's a positive example as well. Uh, and I have to say, I get along with South Africans much better <laughs> than with Europeans nowadays. Uh, uh, most Europeans have the mentality of government bureaucrats, whereas those South Africans who are not government bureaucrats tend to be more entrepreneurial. They know that a lot of their life is their responsibility. They have to care for their security, uh, for their health care. For the education, it's a lot more personal responsibility because you can't rely on the central state. And that changes the outlook. Whereas in Austria and Germany, most people think that they can trust those structures. They have their best interest at heart. You'll do everything they say. And if they give you a vaccine mandate or whatever, of course, that's in your best interest. And you've got to hurry up in complying and doing everything you're told. Uh, uh, because the government is there to provide everything for you. Whereas in South Africa, the trust is much lower. The downside is the trust in society is lower, but the upside is you don't have the trust in bad structures that are not sustainable in the long run. So I think, and I've seen a lot of amazing 
cultural flourishing, even I'd say a particular among these Africana initiatives, uh, the city formations, the institutions that are built up uh, really within this week in South Africa. I visited lots of projects and I was amazed uh, by the quality of the people involved, by their uh, how they are engaged in it, how it's a long-term perspective. Uh, and, and I'd say generally that the average quality of the people I met in these projects is far above what I'm used to in Europe. Uh, and it, I think it comes out of that that you need to create your own institutions. You can't just rely on someone providing them for you. So I think what very few people realize, and, and only I through my trip, uh, I realized how far you've come that South Africa could be a positive example as well. Of course, not the nation state of South Africa, but South Africans, the people living mm. there um, and managing and coping with life in South Africa. And I think there's a lot to learn. Uh, maybe, Europe, maybe most Europeans still are having a much too good life uh, to think about having to learn from anyone because they think they can teach the world. Uh, and unfortunately, South Africans learn from Europeans. You took over the German constitution, which was really, really bad idea. Uh, and all the experts uh, that came over from, from Europe with all the development advice and so on, you should have kept them out uh, uh, and never have allowed them, them to enter. But in five years and 10 years from now, more and more Europeans will be under immense pain realizing that their trust was really abused and that they don't get in return what they expect, and it, that, namely that kind of safety, quality of life and so on that they take for granted. And then I think they learn from the South African experience. Uh, uh, and that's why I think South Africa is the future also in a positive sense. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about Orania. I think you know of it. Yes. Uh, this this little sort of Hanseatic town in the middle of the country. Yes, uh, I'm quite impressed uh, by it, uh, and due to the size and autonomy. It's really, I, I'd say, it's it's not. We have a lot of communes and communities, even in Europe, like people getting together, starting their own thing, and usually it's like tens of people. The largest are a few hundreds of people. Orania has three thousand, more than three thousand five hundred people, I think now, and the growth rate is amazing. And it's not obvious. Uh, it's really dif difficult challenges getting people forming a kind of culture and living together because it's much uh, uh, larger than a kind of tribal structure, people where everyone thinks alike. Uh, uh, so that's a big challenge. So I have a lot of respect uh, for the people building up that kind of institution. And uh, uh, I have not visited Orania yet. I had a chance to talk to a few people very much involved uh, with it. I had a very, uh, I, I was impressed. I had a very good impression of the people uh, that are involved with the project. Before I thought it's a kind of Africana exclusive community and it's more defensive. Uh, and it's of course, it's the story we get in Europe. It's, it's even a kind of racist settlement and so on. That's how it would be painted if anyone knows about it and writes about it. Uh, and that was my understanding as well, that it's defensive, but I realized, no, it has a cultural mandate. It's it's positive. It's not against, uh, we want to shut out everyone. We want to mm. do something, we do, do our thing, but everyone can learn from us. And we are reaching out uh, uh, and that impressed me even more uh, because that's very much aligned with that kind of city structure. You understand yourself as a node. You don't want to start a new Africana state from Orania with it as the capital. Uh, it's something else. You understand that it's a node. It's not a node for everyone. Mm. Someone will take part of that node. Maybe it can be an example for other nodes forming in the future, which will be part of a network and learn from the experiences. Uh, and that's what I like about it. Do you think technology and the rapid pace of its progress is going to uh, perpetuate the, the breakdown of the nation state? Uh, yes, I think uh, changes in military technology uh, are now rather to the detriment of the nation state uh, because they lend themselves more to a decentralized kind of warfare with all its challenges and problems, of course. Uh, uh, and I think it's a geopolitical situation. One empire is breaking down, uh, and we see that um, it's pretty obvious that we're going from a 
uh, after the Cold War, the remaining U.S. Uh, superpower is getting more oriented towards itself, uh, and we are going towards a multipolar order. That doesn't mean it's not just positive, okay? There's a lot of turmoil in these phases going through, but I think it gives us the chance to see an institution which I think uh, was overall a bad one, not entirely bad, but overall a bad one, and it's the centralized state that we have been used to. And I think we are going towards a more decentralized or different overlapping structures. I don't think we'll have like uh, millions of entities flourishing next to each other. It will be a more uh, differentiated, more complicated structure with a lot of possibilities. Uh, uh, and I look forward to that. Uh, but for mm -hmm. many people, it will be a challenging time. That's no question. Uh, going through that phase uh, is challenging. That's why the Chinese that's the saying, the wish that to, to your enemy that he'll live through interesting times. And I think we're living through interesting times. And of course, everyone can see the bad that is happening. Mm, uh, mm. Uh, and this interventionism we see on a global scale, I think those are signs of weakness. They are not signs of strength. They are signs of weakness. It's this desire to control, even though you don't know better and you know that you don't know better. But you've got to fake it until until everyone believes that you know better. Right. Uh, and I think those are signs of weakness. Uh, and we are in, in a gradual tradition which may go back and learn from history that there are different ways. And they may look a bit different. We are not reenacting history, but we can learn that there are different structures and very mm. functional structures other than centralized nation states and empires as well, of course. Empires are even worse. It's like aggrandized nation states uh, with a global mandate. Uh, mm. Yeah, I mean, and and that's and that's the irony. Um, it's the it's the global empire versus the uh, city state, and it's that it's that tug of war. But Rahim, let's come in. Let's come in for for the landing. In front of you, there is a crystal ball. What do you see? <laughs> Unfortunately, there is no crystal ball in front of me. That would be really great uh, if I had one. <laughs> so I, uh, in long term, I'm optimistic. Uh, and uh, the reason I'm optimistic is that I don't think the status quo is the end of history. In the sense, it's not the best uh, that human beings have achieved. So it can be better. Uh, it won't necessarily be better for those accustomed to a high quality of life that has been stable after the war, in particular Europeans and Western Europeans. Um, but uh, in the long term, the potential is that uh, technology has shown that you can adopt it or you can adopt ideas rather quickly. And ideas get adopted through being better role models. Uh, and it's not the majority that you need for change. It's tiny minorities that cope better with challenges. And it becomes obvious after a while. And then you, then you have no other alternative but by copying what successful minorities have done before. Uh, and it makes me optimistic in the long term. I'm also more of the an optimist concerning technology of course i see all the challenges i see our technologies tools and will be abused always be abused for evil means as well but technological change is a reshuffling of cards and that allows new structures to emerge and as i'm not reactionary in the sense that i believe that the status quo or anything the perfect status quo before it was challenged was perfect i'm very happy for a reshuffling I think it'll be great if the power structures, the hierarchies of legitimacy uh, and so on, uh, saying hey, who is successful nowadays, who has the highest credibility. I think we'd be better off with some reshuffling. Uh, and uh, yeah, sometimes I think some of those people having most of the prestige nowadays should have the least. Some of the people being the most successful should be the least successful. Uh, and I think it'll be a more just world. Uh, of course, I'm not a utopian, but I think a reshuffling uh, will be a turmoil, but but uh, uh, it will improve some things. And if you have an open mindset and an entrepreneurial mindset and are open to change, I think those are good times or can be good times. Where can people find more about you and, of course, free private cities? Uh Scholarium underscore AT is my Twitter handle. Uh, most of my work is in German. Uh, 
It's quite a dominant cultural language in, in Central Europe uh, and economically one of the most important parts. So almost all my teaching and writing, I've written more than a dozen books, all of them in German, but two or so or three have been translated to English and a few to other languages. And it's like the Zero Interest Trap is one of those. Austrian School for Investors is another book available in English. Uh, and uh, there'll be... Um, I'll start an initiative to build up citadels. I call them Bitcoin citadels because I think it's the linkage of the alternative in the financial sector, which provides some of the reshuffling. Uh, and that's been due to importance of Bitcoin uh, as more or less an alternative to the financial system and citadels in the sense of people starting new communities, because I think before you start a city, it's better to start out small and figure out all your way. And then, of course, you can surpass Orania maybe at one day. But uh, I am someone who believes in trial and error and bottom up. Uh, uh, so I'll start a project which is not up yet, but uh, which will be reached on the citadel.garden in the future. And uh, there'll be a network of citadels uh, financed mainly by the wealth Bitcoin has made possible to early adopters. Rahim. Hagazard again. Thank you so much for joining me in the trenches. Thanks for the great conversation. Time went up, flew really fast. That <laughs> was great fun, wasn't it? <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you. You too. And hope to see you again in South Africa. You will. You will. My name is Germ. This is Germ Wolfie, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.